Once every two years, the education policy community holds its collective breath as it awaits the release of the latest round of results from the National Assessment of Educational Progress, often referred to as the nation's report card. As of today, April 10th, 2018, the results are in, and the news is not good. Scores ticked up in eighth grade reading, but were otherwise flat, continuing a period of stagnation that's now persisted for nearly a decade. What lessons should we draw from the results? And were there any bright spots amid the gloom? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and joining me for a special NAEP Day edition of the EdNext podcast is Michael Petrilli, president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, and of course, an executive editor of our journal. You can find articles by Mike and a number of other scholars both previewing and analyzing today's results on our website at educationnext.org. Mike, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Hey, it's great to be here, Marty. Thanks for having me. So not many people get as excited as you do about NAEP Day. Uh, I guess we don't spill ink anymore these days, but you must have worn out your keyboard in the days leading up to the announcement telling us what to look for. Why is the NAEP such a big deal? No, you're right, Marty. I've been obsessed with this for uh, the last several weeks, if not months. And yes, probably written thousands of words on it, uh, getting ready for this. Look, the, the reason it's a big deal is it is our best barometer of how our students are doing and how our schools are doing when it comes to student learning. It's the only assessment that we've got nationally that assesses everybody. You know, certainly the state-by-state -state test can tell us a lot of good information and are fantastic for research, but they're state-by-state. -state. Things like ACT and SAT still don't test everybody. A few of the international exams do a representative sample of America's students, so those are very helpful as well, but they tend to be not as frequent and they uh, don't go quite as uh, in-depth. So this is really, as everybody has said, the gold standard, and it allows us to see over time what the trends are looking like. We can break that down by different subgroups and, of course, by the states and now by many large urban districts. What it can't do is tell us why the trends might be changing. That's where the rest of us get to come in and and offer some hypotheses. And then uh, scholars like you have to go in and get the restricted use data and dig into the numbers and see if there's any of these hypotheses hold water uh, once, we, once we look at that more closely. And one of the other interesting things about the NAEP, I guess, is that it's a lower, perhaps even no stakes assessment. No one is rewarded or punished based on the results, whether it be state, schools, or students. So, you know, in theory, at least, no one has incentives to try and be inflating their test scores in the way we worry about is the case in, uh, for example, when we're using state tests. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so that makes us feel like maybe the learning that's measured here is more authentic. Of course, it can also be a challenge. You do worry about whether kids are trying hard on this test, which can be a big factor. We know from some studies, for example, that on the international exams, American kids don't seem to be trying as hard as some of the students from the Asian countries. So, you know, that, that, that cuts both ways. But uh, certainly this is not a test that can be gamed or that uh, you can really prepare for. It's a sample of kids uh, in each, uh, well, nationally in each state and in some of these districts. And so, uh, you know, it gives us an idea of how kids are doing on these sort of generic math and reading skills uh, without it being tied directly to accountability or anything else. And that issue of student effort might be particularly important with older students, those we test in the 12th grade. But today, when we're talking about the main NAEP results, we're talking about fourth grade and eighth grade reading and math. 
And so that's where our attention is today. And you wrote in advance of the release that the number one question heading into it is, will the flat national trends continue? And in a word, the answer is yes, I guess, huh? The answer is yes. And as I've been writing about, I worry this has been a lost decade for the United States. You know, we have seen very little progress over the last decade, little tiny bumps up in in eighth grade math and reading over the last 10 years. Uh, But, you know, fourth grade completely flat. And this is depressing. You know, this is after the previous decade from the late 90s into the 2000s when we made remarkable progress, Uh, especially our lowest performing kids and kids of color, some of our most disadvantaged kids, made tremendous progress in the uh, in the onset of the accountability era and then no child left behind. But somewhere in the late 2000s, we seem to have hit a wall. Uh, we didn't go backwards, so that's good, but we haven't gone forward either. And of course, the question is why. None of us know for sure, but certainly people are offering some hypotheses. I mean, another way to uh, think about the results, so I agree with your characterization of stagnation over a decade, um, but it, There were, you know, in the 2015 assessment relative to 2013, declines that were statistically significant and substantial in three of the four grade subject combinations. Another way to think about this year's results is that it looks like those declines weren't a one-time blip, but, you know, really did represent a a loss. Yeah, no, that's right. Now, I'd like to look over at least four years whenever possible, and that's what I've been doing with my analyses, with, with the notion that, look, you know, you could have a blip up or down uh, when we're looking every two years. What you really want to see is, is more sustained improvements or declines, if that's what happens. And so some of those declines in 2015 seem to have been canceled out, and some of them have stayed. You know, it's really the story is uh, in math especially, um, the subject where we made so much progress uh, over previous decades you know, it's been in the last few cycles, math, where we've really looked like we have stumbled. And that should raise some alarms. Now, you mentioned that scholars are already offering hypotheses that could account for what's happened over the past several years. And that includes a couple of scholars writing on the Education Next website. Uh, out this morning, Kiribo Jackson had a piece really trying to make the case that uh, both the declines between 2013 and 15 and the lack of progress in this assessment round uh, really reflects the long-term effects of the spending cuts that occurred in the wake of the Great Recession. Uh, how convincing do you find that? Well, look, I, I find it pretty convincing. I'd certainly think it's something that we uh, have to take as a possibility you know, one reason it seems convincing is when you look at some of the patterns be- below the averages, you know, the students who are doing the worst now, where, where we're seeing declines, are our lowest achieving students. Um, you know, those kids are going to tend to be our more disadvantaged kids as well. On the other hand, we've seen some actual pretty impressive progress at the high end, the highest achieving kids and kids getting to the advanced level. Those kids, on average, tend to be more affluent. So, you know, if this is a factor of the recession, then you think, well, the kids who were impacted the most by the recession, either because their own families experienced stress or because their schools experienced funding cuts, those are going to be kids who are relatively poor. Uh, so, you know, that that's a possibility. Of course, he has looked at some other studies where they've dug in and, and, and found some pretty compelling evidence of 
of this link between the decline in spending and decline in achievement. So it, it's a possibility. I mean, it may be that uh, over the last decade, our school system has faced some real headwinds that it didn't face previously uh, because of the Great Recession and its impact. Uh, and because it, it wasn't doing enough uh, a positive change and improvement in teaching and learning, we see these the stagnation and even some declines. Uh, that's one theory. Now, another theory could be that uh, we've moved backwards in this time period from test-based accountability. You know, Sandy Kress, who was involved with the No Child Left Behind Act as, as George W. Bush's domestic, uh, one, one of his domestic policy advisors, you know, he tries to make the case that, look, uh, you know, scores were flat in the 90s and they were flat in the last decade. The t- one time when they were increasing was when there was serious test-based accountability. Uh, and we started backing off that under the Obama administration with NCLB waivers and the like. And, and so we reap what we sow. Now, again, we can't prove any of this. This is all speculation, but that's certainly something we should uh, consider as well. Yeah, I wanted to get your take on that second hypothesis you attributed to Sandy Kress. Paul Peterson, writing in Education Next, has made that, that same argument. And I think one reason why it doesn't ring true initially to a lot of educators is they would say, has there really been a rollback of test-based accountability over the past decade during the Obama era? Uh, I don't think that's how people have experienced the policies, but what is it that mm-hmm. folks like Cress and Peterson are pointing to? Well, right. I mean, we have to be specific. I mean, certainly the testing has not gone away, although lots of states have rolled back testing to the bare minimum required by the federal government. Uh, but what you have seen is less focus on school-level accountability with real consequences for schools. I mean, that was already petering out under the Bush administration, basically people figuring out that NCLB's bark was worse than its bite, uh, with you know all the fear that that the low-performing schools were going to face serious sanctions, uh, largely did not come to pass. But then over time, you know, we had this situation in the late 2000s where virtually every school was labeled as a failing school because of the way No Child Left Behind was working or not working, and so everybody just sort of stopped uh, implementing it. I mean, there was sort of, uh, and as as the policy types were debating what to do next, um, you know. So it, I, I think it. I would argue that there certainly was a shift from around 2000 into 2015, um, you know, where there just wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a serious threat that the low performing schools were going to face serious consequences. There was of course an infusion of money to try to help them with the school improvement grants. There was a lot of talk about test-based teacher evaluation. uh, Although that didn't come to pass in many places, at least in the way that people had, had thought it might. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I I wouldn't go so far as to blame the Obama folks. I think that this was happening already under No Child Left Behind. It was running out of steam. It needed to be updated. And this is partly a consequence of Congress not getting its act together uh, and getting the job done uh, for so many years. See, I'm going to end up blaming blaming you, Marty, because you were there on Capitol Hill and you didn't get it done. Hey, I did my best to get it done, and I think we eventually got a result. But yes, it was uh, long overdue when it came. Yes. And I'm teasing, of course. I'm teasing, of course, Marty. Not, I, I won't blame you too much. Now, another possible interpretation that you know I find attractive is that uh, test-based accountability, yes, it works in the sense that it uh, produces a one-time bump in achievement when it's first put in place, something that would explain gains that a number of states made prior to No Child Left Behind when they adopted those systems on their own. 
It would explain some of the progress in the early No Child Left Behind years when uh, other states adopted test-based accountability systems as a result of that law, but that, you know, test-based accountability has not been enough to launch state school systems and the nation on sort of a different trajectory of improvement. Um, and it yep. seems to me that that could explain the pattern that we've seen over time as well. That's right. And, you know, uh, Mark Schneider, who's about to become the head of the Institute for Education Sciences, he wrote a great paper for us at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute back in 2010 called The Accountability Plateau and basically saying what's happening at that time in Texas, where they seem to have hit a wall, uh, was going to happen in the rest of the United States, that, that there was this one-time shift, but then, uh, then that's it. And that seems, you know, could, could have been the case. You know, one other thing that worth pointing out is my, my colleague Brandon Wright uh, wrote about there has been over the last decade very impressive progress for our highest achieving kids. That's good. Uh, we at, at Fordham worry a lot about high achievers. You've got more kids getting to advance, more kids uh, at the 90th percentile doing well. Uh, now, unfortunately, there's lots of, quote, excellence gaps. Uh, you know, the, it's mostly white and Asian, Asian students who are doing better. But that's interesting, too, is to say, you know, why, you know, what has happened in our schools, if anything, or maybe it's outside of schools that it's helping uh, that slice of the population do better. Now, as you mentioned earlier, we've got national results today, but we also got results at the state level and also for a number of large urban school districts. As we transition to talk about those results, I think we have to note that for the first time, those results were based on NAEP tests that were conducted via tablets, fully digitally, rather than the paper-based assessment uh, as part of the NAEP's transition to those assessments. Some questions are being raised about how much weight we should put on the results for any one state in this round, given the fact that maybe not all students were equally uh, equipped to take an assessment in a digital format. But setting that concern aside for the moment, what was most noteworthy in the subnational results? Yeah, well, let, let me not set it aside just for a sec here. I mean, I think that the questions have been raised. The, it goes way over my head in terms of uh, the math, you know, that's used to figure out whether these uh, scores are legit as we made this transition. But it, it is fair to say that some of the states that saw some big declines uh, were states that uh, have both lots of disadvantaged kids who you would expect maybe to do worse on tablets, and that also don't use uh, digital assessments for their own state testing program, at least in the early grades. So, you know, Louisiana is, is probably the poster child for that. Really remarkable declines in fourth grade reading and math. Uh, you know, surprising given uh, all the good work that they seem to be doing on many fronts there. So certainly uh, their leaders are making the case that that was because of the switch to the tablets. But you see that also in some other places like Tennessee. Uh, North Carolina and others. Uh, so, yeah, but, you know, let's assume that we can take these uh, results seriously. You know, the big news today on the plus side was Florida uh, showing statistically significant progress in several categories. Uh, I have done some analysis looking again over four years instead of just two years, and uh, Florida certainly pops up on that. But the other big one is Mississippi. Uh, Mississippi now for, for many years has had this uh, trend that goes against the grain where they've been making real progress in most subjects, most grades uh, for both white and African-American kids in their state. 
Uh, so maybe Mississippi's the next state we need to be looking at because something good seems to be happening there. Yeah, I want to go back to that example of Florida. Um, our colleague, Matt Chingos, at the Urban Institute, um, you know, each year when the NAEP results come out, he and his colleagues immediately release an important analysis which shows what state results would look like if you make adjustments for the demographic characteristics of the students they serve. Um, and that makes a big difference in which states look as if they're uh, doing better and doing worse. Florida is one of the states that it makes a huge difference for. And Florida really leaps from the middle of the pack in terms of its raw scores to, at the fourth grade level, the top performing state in the country once you adjust for demographic characteristics. Uh, even better than Massachusetts. As a member of the State Board of Education in Massachusetts, I find that frustrating. Uh, that we still have an edge on them in eighth grade, as I understand it. But, um, you know, really something good is happening in Florida, also in Texas uh, and in Mississippi, as you mentioned. Yeah. No, and, and those adjustments are great. I mean, what all of us are trying to figure out is, hey, how, how do you take uh, account for the demographics of a state, which we know have a huge impact on, on these sorts of test scores, and then be able to actually look at what you might uh you know, might say is the responsibility of education policies and practices. Matt's approach is great, uh, uh, you know, adjusting for demographics. I've been trying to look at change over time as one way to do that. But any way you slice it, yeah, Florida and Mississippi uh, are two places that we should be looking at. When you dig below that into the, the uh, urban district results, Miami continues to be on a tear. You know, Miami now uh, for several uh, cycles has been showing remarkable gains. And I think we should all be asking ourselves what's going on down there. It's understandable why its superintendent was sought after by the mayor of New York to lead at schools. Not going to happen in the end. Uh, Chicago continues to do well, which is uh, leaves me scratching my head a little bit. Uh, I can't quite explain that, but they continue to do quite well. Also, you know, Washington, D.C., which of course has been a real darling of education reformers, uh, its progress seems to have petered out, uh, you know, still just barely shows some statistically significant gains from 2013, uh, but that seems to be slowing down. So that's certainly going to be a part of the, the debate over Washington, D.C. going forward. Now, when we're talking about the urban district results, remind listeners, remind me, uh, whether those results include the charter schools that are located within a given district's boundaries, or whether this is a way to look separately at the performance of schools operated yeah. by the district directly? It, it's, it's a confusing answer to that. It, in most cases, it does not include the charter schools. In a handful of cases, it does. And I could not off the top of my head tell you which is which. I'm, I'm quite certain that in D.C. that it's just the D.C. public schools. Uh, I think that's the case in Miami, but I'm not totally sure. But there are some places where the charters are included. Now, the state results do all include charter schools in them. And so so you can, for example, get different scores for D.C. public schools versus Washington, D.C. when it's treated as a state uh, and kind of tease that apart right there. I ask that in part because uh, you know, one of the things we might learn by looking at Florida writ large and also uh, at Miami in particular, it, while it would be far too strong to say that the strong performance that those jurisdictions have registered is a result of the expansive school choice programs in the state, it, those patterns do seem to me to cast doubt on claims that expanding school choice will, you know, 
inevitably lead to an erosion of performance in the traditional public schools. Yeah, no, that's that's true. But but keep in mind, Florida has been a very strong accountability state also for many years. They have kept their A to F system intact while many other states have been making changes. So, you know, I think Florida, they do it all. You know, this is why so many people, including Secretary DeVos, continue to point to Florida. They've got a comprehensive reform agenda and, and choices. Part of that, you know, Indiana is another place where uh, I had been pretty excited. They've showed huge progress from 2011 to 2015 across basically every subject and grade and across basically every racial group and was hoping to see that again in 2017. And that too starts to look like it has petered out. Uh, so I don't know. It looked like when, look, when Tony Bennett was in Indiana, they made huge gains and then he moved to Florida and they made huge gains. So I, I'm, I'm starting to say Tony Bennett, he's, he's uh, as, as we once called him at Fordham, he is the Ed Reform idol. Maybe he gets some real credit. So petered out is a phrase I think you've used several times in this short conversation and one that I think captures accurately what we're seeing nationwide. If the gains we had been making for an extended period in recent decades have in fact petered out, what do we do about it, Mike? What, what comes next? Yeah. Uh, I don't you know, see a uh, lot of enthusiasm for returning to uh, heavy-handed test-based accountability as it was mm -hmm. in place in the early No Child Left Behind era. Mm -hmm. what, what ideas are going to get us unstuck? Maybe these scores will help us return to some enthusiasm for that. Look, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, for a decade now, we've heard our national political leaders rail against testing. I mean, I remember the uh, Obama versus Hillary Clinton campaign starting back in, you know, 2007, 2008. That was the talk, was too much testing, over-testing, teaching to the test. It wasn't about, hey, you know, we're, we're losing ground compared to our international competitors and if we don't prepare our kids well, they're not going to get to succeed in our economy. Or It may be time for us to get back to those basics. Uh, now, the other thing is, of course, if it has been the recession, that's going to work itself out. Um, maybe we'll see a bump next time just because the kids uh, that are going to be tested next time, uh, you know, didn't go through the same experience. But finally, I would, I would point to one more idea, and it's, it's related to an article that is coming out soon in Education Next, and it's that maybe it's time that we ask our kids to work harder. You know, the, the, the one thing we haven't really tried in education reform in America is to actually have higher expectations for kids and hold them accountable for them. Uh, most countries overseas worry a lot about making sure that kids actually are putting an effort uh, and they have to pass what are true high-stakes exams in order to have opportunities uh, for post-secondary education or other things. And we may need more of that in America. And maybe, you know, you've got, the again, the slice of kids at the top who are doing better. We know that they do a lot of work. They do a lot of homework. They do a lot of stuff outside of school. Um, their parents are pushing them. We see that Asian-American kids are particularly continuing to make progress. And so maybe our system uh, needs to translate all this rhetoric about high expectations into uh, much more concrete expectations, making kids do more work, making uh, having higher standards for grading and what it takes to get an A and that sort of thing um, might be something we ought to try. My guest today has been Michael Petrilli, president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and executive editor at Education Next. You can find Mike's writings leading up to and in the wake of NAEP Day at educationnext.org. Mike, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks so much, Marty. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. 
If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or another platform so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, be sure to check out our archives, where you can find each of the more than 100 episodes we've recorded since 2015. Talk to you next week.